I'm excited to share with you this morning what the Lord's put on my heart, and I've entitled the, the message this morning, The Value of Good Hearing. The Value of Good Hearing. And we're in, of course, in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. If I could draw your attention to verse 1 of chapter 5, which reads this way, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Thus far in our study of the book, we've been introduced to uh, at least three warnings that have started in the beginning of this glorious theological, deeply theological book. We've been warned, of course, about drifting away from the faith through neglect of the things that we have heard of so great a salvation. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We've been warned also about willfully ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit that would result in a heart that becomes hardened by unbelief. Uh, chapters 3, verse 14. Recently, a couple weeks ago, we found ourselves being warned about falling short of the rest that God has for each one of his children through his promises regarding his work of redemption. Verse 11 of chapter 4. And then, of course, last week, Pastor Austin did a wonderful job about reminding God's people that we experience God's rest through God's grace. This morning, we come to a new section of the book of Hebrews, which is actually five chapters long, but singularly focused. Yes, it's five chapters long with one central theme, and that is the priesthood and the finality, or rather the preeminence, and the finality of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The preeminence and the finality of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just jumping into our study and just reading that first verse, verse 1 of chapter 5, the term or the word high priest may seem a little disconnected with being warned about drifting or neglect or falling short of the rest of God. But the author has, in fact, introduced the subject matter in the previous chapter in verse 14 when he talked about uh, Jesus Christ being a great high priest and as Pastor Austin did so beautifully last week, that passage in the last portion of chapter 4 warns every reader that the word of God, it exposes us. It exposes our nature to ourself. What did someone once say? Uh, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. In other words, if you're going to place yourself in front of the, the word of God, something unique is going to happen. 
as you read scripture, as you consider what's being said, the heart, the nature of mankind becomes exposed, becomes naked before God. And to any heart that is sensitive or willing to admit that they're, they're listening and hearing what the word of God is saying, what happens is the individual being exposed by the word of God, left naked before God, realizes their sin and that they need someone to mediate. Someone to place their hand on them and to place their hand on God. The Bible tells us that there is one mediator between man and God, man Christ Jesus. The last portion of chapter 4 tells us that Jesus understands our weaknesses, though he was without sin. Verse 15 of chapter 4, and it leaves the reader with an invitation to go or to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need, verse 16 of chapter 4. And then the author picks up again. Now in this section, he begins to systematically for the next five chapters explain the preeminence and finality of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Here in chapter 5, he takes on three subjects. First of all, the priesthood of men. Second of all, the priesthood of Christ and its connection with a person named Melchizedek. And thirdly, the need for the Christian, be it Hebrew or Gentile, to understand that connection. So once again, drawing our attention to verse 1, as he said that every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The mention of the word high priest, every Hebrew would have immediately drawn their attention to what that figure, that person is. You see... Under the Old Covenant, some of you who may uh, be just learning your Old Testament principles and how they apply to the New Testament, under the Old Covenant, a priest was necessary, essential, if you will, to connect the worshiper to the God who is to be worshipped. And here in the first three verses of, of chapter 5, the author gives three uh, characteristics that are essential of every priest in any age. Let's read it together. Verse uh, 2, he goes on to say that he, the high priest, appointed, uh, taken from men, right, and appointed for men, that he, verse 2, can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Stop there. So in those first three verses, two of the three characteristics are given. The first of which is that the high priest is taken from men, 
for men. Or in other words, the high priest is appointed on behalf of others to deal with the things that pertain to God. That was the first characteristic essential in the life of the high priest. Taken from men, appointed for men or others to deal with the things that pertain to God. Now what's interesting is that a professor by the name of A.J. Gossip, who was a professor at Trinity College in Glasgow many years ago, used to tell his students that when he was first ordained into the ministry, I believe in the early 1900s in Glasgow, the people were consumed with, of course, their work and their task of getting through daily and weekly living, going to work, making sure they could meet their bills, fill, uh, meet those needs that they have, raising home, the tasks that would just arduously consume them all week long. And the professor gossip used to tell his students that the people would come to him and tell him, we want you to be set apart. We're out there in the working world. We're out there, you know, just surviving and getting along. And we want you to be set apart so that you can hear from God, so that you come back every Sunday with a word from God for us. In other words, we, they wanted him to be a link between God and themselves. Essential to the priest of any age and any generation. But secondly, the priest was also to be at one with the people. As we read there in verse 2, that he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Do you see that? You might want to underline that. Because what that second essential characteristic was is that the priest, both in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in the life of the people of the Hebrews, as well as any generation in any age, was to be at one with the people, having experienced the same things that they experienced, and being in full sympathy with them. Now, of course, it's easy for many of us who know Christ and know his priestly position, how Christ fulfills that, being fully God, yet fully man, but notice that that high priest, he couldn't offer sacrifice for sins of the people without first offering a sacrifice for sin, the sins of himself. So he was to be at one with them. That word subject to weakness is an interesting Greek phrase. If you're taking note this morning, it's a phrase that is pronounced metriopathea. Uh, Matriopathea, and what it means is this. The Greeks used that phrase to express the mid, a middle point between extravagant grief and utter indifference. The middle point between extravagant 
extravagant grief and utter indifference. And that was to explain the heart, uh, the person that was to act as a priest. They weren't to just be extravagantly grieved over the condition of the people that he was to care for and be priest to. And he wasn't to be utterly indifferent to the condition of the people that he was to be priest to. No, he was to be in this middle point to be at one with them. Uh, it was Plutarch who said that patience is the child of metriopathia. And the bottom line, really, in that subject, if we want to talk about how a, a pastor is at one with the people that he's to pastor, what am I? Uh, I'm your pastor, yes, but we're all in the hospital. There's only one great physician. His name is Jesus. And as one who stands before you this morning, privileged to be your pastor, someone once put it this way, I'm just a guy who's been in the hospital a little bit longer. I might know where the cafeteria is. I might know where the nurse center is. I might know, you know, how to get a hold of, of a, a certain caregiver. And so in that way, I might be able to point others in the hospital and help them. Because after all, I'm still getting beat up, cut up, and chewed up, and need care myself. I love that analogy. It, it speaks volumes to me. Someone once put it this way. People get mixed up about this and they begin to think that the missionary, the singer, the Bible teacher, or the pastor is the answer. He goes on to say, no, they're walking around in the same blue gowns that tie us in the back. Still being patched up, still getting operated on regularly. As someone once said, I'm still terminal, but I have found a great doctor. I will die, but we know who's giving us care. That's the essence of true ministry and the heart of the, the priest. Now, this third essential characteristic really is even more greatly powerful than that. And it comes to us in the fourth verse, if I could point your attention to it. Verse 4 it says, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So the third essential characteristic for the priesthood of men, he's still dealing with the priesthood of men, is that a man couldn't choose to be priest because that's what he wanted to choose. No, there must be the evidence of a calling and it must be God who endeavors that call to come upon the life. As some put it this way, that the priesthood is not an office taken, it's a privilege given. It's not a job or a career, it's a calling. And it's not something that a person chooses to do, but rather they cannot not do that. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16 as he was writing to the Corinthians about God's call on his life? He said, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon used to tell his students. And that word came echoing to me some 30 years ago when considering full-time ministry. Maybe some of you this morning or you're either watching by television or you're here in this room and you've considered what it might mean to be called into ministry or full-time ministry. And here's the thing. If you can do something else, go do it. If you can do something else, you need to go do that. Having come off of a few years of being a meat cutter for Lucky's and believing that the Lord had a call on my life, there, there came this crucible moment where I knew I could not not do this. And though it came at great expense and, and uh, trial to my wife and family, it was something I knew I could not not answer to. So that's the author's point in dealing with the priesthood of men. And so now it's easily to, easy to make the connection in the text of how he now examples the priesthood of Christ and how Christ fulfills those essentials. If we look at verse um, Five, he immediately goes into the priesthood of Christ, having given a clear explanation of the priesthood of men. In verse 5, he says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And the author quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7. And we, we can recall and remember, of course, on, on that day at the Jordan River when Jesus came, remember, and John the Baptist saw him coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and when he, Jesus was there in the Jordan, uh, the scriptures tell us that a voice came from heaven who said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we know, of course, as he goes on in verse 6, and, and he says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The author again quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 4, which would have heightened the interest of the reader and the listener who was Hebraic or Hebrew And as he continues, we now get into, of course, the, the being at one with the people. Jesus, our great high priest, being at one with the people to whom he would act as the link between God and man too. In verses 7 and 8, it goes on, who, speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his holy fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Being fully man, yet fully God, who was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. Here's his at one minute. 
with you and I, with humanity. And doesn't that blow your mind? It says that he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries. The Bible tells us that he sweated, listen, he sweated as it were drops of blood, praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming. Now, what ignites me and excites me, and I hope it it will excite you too, but it, it may not. Because listen, some of you have been praying. Some of you, I know, have been praying. The question is, how are you praying? The question is, what are you praying for? The question becomes, what is the purpose of prayer? And I'm going to throw this answer out because it's just riddled all through not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament. It's, it's a conclusive reality in the whole of the text of Scripture. Prayer is designed to get me in line with God's will, not to line God with my will. So if you've been praying and difficult things happen, you're going, well, hey, I prayed about it. What what in the world is going on? You know, this happened, that happened. Prayer is to get me in line with God's will. Not for me to try and get God in line with my will. Because Jesus said at the end of that classic, vehement prayers offered up, nevertheless, Not my will, but thy will be done. Are you, in your prayer life, asking yourself to be aligned with God's will for you? It begins by submitting your life to Christ. Have you ever heard about someone who might believe in God. And you're talking to them, yeah, I I believe in God. Not a big deal. The Bible tells us that even the demons believe and they shudder. So faith or belief in God is one thing. Prayer is another thing that if you're praying to the God of the Bible, it begins with you and I wanting to Align ourselves with his will. And what is his will? That none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Have you given your life to Christ? Because if you haven't, that's where it starts. A full submission that is simple. Doesn't have to be eloquent. God, I know I'm a sinner. I recognize that I am in need of a Savior. Will you forgive me of my sin? Save me and come and live your life out through me. If you haven't done that, that's what God is inviting you to do this morning. For we learned that Christ in his priesthood 
Though he was a son, verse 8, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And verse 9 tells us, and having been perfected or completed in his role or in his life as fully man, having been completed, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not to just those who believe he existed. Not to just those who know Jesus was real. Not to just those who might read about him in scripture. Not to those who uh, believe in God. Notice those were to all. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who what? Can you say two words? Obey him. Obey him in what? In submitting their life to him. And believing that he has forgiven them, and now will carry them all the way through this life into eternity. Powerful. Just powerful. There's no two two ways about it. Just powerful. Completed and called. One with man. Taken from, as man, for man. And now in verse 11... We find an interesting, well, verse 10, there's the call, right? Uh, So also Christ. He didn't choose this himself. God called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Second time that this name is mentioned in in its introduction to the reader, to the Hebrew. Now, Melchizedek will be more fully developed in chapter 7, but necessary in this text and to the reader because the author has a purpose in mentioning Melchizedek. His name first comes to us in Genesis chapter 14, in verse 18, where some of you do know your Old Testament, uh, maybe you can tell me right now why Melchizedek comes on the scene. You remember? It was with Abraham. And high priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, shows up to bless Abraham, the greater blessing the lesser. And Abraham pays tithes to him And we find that this priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, has no beginning or end and is in fact a, what the theologians call, it sounds fancy, but it's it's a real word. We can all say it. A theophany, theo God, ophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. That's what a theophany is. And so, Melchizedek showing up on the scene with Abraham in chapter 14 of Genesis is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And the author here says that that priest of the Most High God has an order or a specific uh, circumstance characteristic to him one of which is that he has no beginning, no end. He always has been. 
as is Christ, the second person of our triune God. Now we get closer to uh, the central theme, if you will, of, of chapter 5. And it has to do, as he's writing to Hebrews, has to do with their hearing. Notice verse 11. He's speaking about Melchizedek. And he says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Verse 11, important verse. The author is saying that there's a lot that I want to tell you about Melchizedek and Melchizedek's connection with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Interesting, I'm going to quote several versions for you. Uh, Here in the New King James Version, he says that he has much to say, but it's hard to explain. The revised version says that it's hard of interpretation. The uh, King James Version of the Bible says that it's hard to be uttered. In other words, these things that the author wants to share with the Hebrew Christian that he's writing to, to explain and more deeply connect the priesthood of Melchizedek to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He says, I want to tell you this, but it's hard to explain. It's hard to interpret to you. It's hard to utter it to you. But here's the reason. Because since you have become dull of hearing. I love what uh, William Newell in his commentary says. He says, The difficulty of interpretation may lie in one of three directions. First, in the teacher, not fully instructed. Secondly, in the subject matter, which is often deep and difficult. Or thirdly, in the hearers, and this is his point, who have become dull of hearing. Now, we come to this subject, the value of good hearing. Because obviously the writer is is writing to Christians who were Hebrews and are Hebrews but have come out of Judaism and embraced Christ. And he wants to take them deeper. He's going to talk about that in just a moment. But they've become dull of hearing. It isn't the first time that we come to this phrase. You remember... Interestingly enough, Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of his day, so we would have to back up three decades from when this was written, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day about how they are supposed to know and be able to hear and discern spiritual things, in Matthew 13, verse 13 through 15, he said that, Uh, they have become dull of hearing, and he was quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to invite you to 
Uh, turn there with me real quickly, if you would. Isaiah chapter 6. Keep your hand right there in Hebrews 5. To the left in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 6. And you might recall what, what has happened is that the prophet Isaiah had a vision of the Most High God. And he was in the temple. He saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings and two covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew and one cried to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, here's, here's a man standing in the presence of God, knows that he's in the presence of God, and he says, Woe is me! For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having his hands, having in his hands a live coal which he had taken from the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so you have this man who's, who's experienced an encounter with the living God, saw that he was unclean and unholy, and God in his, his miraculous love takes a coal from the altar that can cleanse this man's lips and touches his lips, and it's, it's equal to the blood of Jesus Christ being taken from the altar of heaven and touching your life to cleanse your life and my life with his precious blood. And in that awareness, Isaiah the prophet says, he hears a voice. It's the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? How can I get this message that I can heal, I can cleanse, I can purify if one will just come to me? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me, verse, verse 8. And verse 9 is where we get this same phrase that Jesus quoted in Matthew 13 and that the author of Hebrews is now dealing with, with Christians. Notice verse 9 of chapter 6 of Isaiah. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Let they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. You know the scenario. What the prophet Isaiah was commissioned to do was go and continue to tell the people what God wanted of their lives, but they continued to refuse to hear. 
The same thing happened when Jesus was walking amongst the religious leaders of his day. He was telling them, I'm telling you why I'm here. I'm telling you who I am, but you're refusing to accept. You keep rejecting in your pride and in your arrogance. You refuse to listen to me. Fast forward, now we have an issue. And I'm going to close, kind of wind this up here, because in verse 12, notice what you find back to Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews 5. Notice what we find in verse 12. And here the page is going, right? In verse 12, he says, For though by this time you, now circle that, circle that word you. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So here the author brings to the centrality of his, this passage, the Christians that he's writing to. Remember who they are? They're Hebrews. Remember in Acts chapter 2, what took place? We're given 14 places in Acts chapter 2. We're given 14 places that are mentioned that the gospel of Jesus Christ would spread out to from the Hebrews that were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now, when did that happen in relation to this text? Some 30 years earlier. So the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians that have been assumably correct, walking with the Lord for some 30 years. And he says, here he he now measures kind of time, is that you should be teachers. Now, uh, let's set aside for a moment the gift of teaching or the call of being a Bible teacher. Every Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, every one of us should be able to just simply teach what the gospel message is to someone who does not know. And I'm not talking about necessarily being a scholar. I'm not talking about being someone who has five different books on yourself, but just being able to teach the simplicity of the gospel message to anybody who doesn't know. And that's what he's referring to. And he's saying you ought to be teachers by by this time that you've been walking with the Lord, but you have come. Notice that in the end of uh, verse 12 there, but you, and you have come to need. It's, it's a process, it's a phrase that means by choice they have rejected solid food and they now need milk again. Now, first of all, let's remind ourselves uh, quickly winding this up, that milk is not bad. Milk is good. And if I'm a baby, I need milk, right? That infant hits the world, and what does that infant feed on? Milk. In fact, the Apostle Peter tells us in the second chapter of his first letter that as newborn babes, we're to desire the sincere or pure 
milk of the word of God. Milk is not bad. Milk's a good thing. But as we grow, we're all going somewhere in our Christian faith. As we grow, there is to come a time in every Christian's life when the milk of the word is no longer what feeds them, what gives them nutrition, what uh, grants them strength, direction, wisdom. They become full age. And he says in verse 13, getting to the verse, two verses that we read this morning, he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. It's not, it's not in any way uh, a derogatory statement. It's just a, an observational fact. And he gives the antithesis to that fact as he's writing to point out to those who have become dull of hearing, who he would like to share deeper things regarding the ministry and priesthood of Melchizedek and connect it to the priesthood of Christ. He says, but solid food belongs, verse 14, to those who are of full age. In other words, maturing. They're no longer feeding on just the milk of the word. They're feeding on, on solid food, meat, meat of the word of God. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That phrase, I cannot get that phrase out of my heart and life. Why? Here's why. Is because what it's saying is that as I get the word of God in here, goes, you know, through the eye gate, ear gate, into the heart, that, and as I mature in Christ, that I, I begin to be able to use the word of God, who by reason of use, I, my senses begin to be exercised. It's like getting on the treadmill or doing sit-ups and, and pull-ups spiritually. The Word of God, the meat of the Word of God, begins to allow me, when I use it, to exercise my senses to know what is good and what is evil. And if you're starting to feel in these last days like you don't belong, you're a pilgrim, there's a, there's a world out there that you just kind of don't really fit into, that's evidence that the word of God is, is exercising, being exercised in your heart and mind. Your senses are exercising to know, to be able to discern between what is good and evil. So the question that we close with this morning as we, as we are out of time and must wind it up is are you enjoying the meat of the word of God? Are you taking up a diet of this thing where you're feeding your spiritual man and using that word to have your senses exercised so that you're more able to discern between what is good and evil. Because that's the call upon every 
Christian. We come to Christ in faith and we're a babe and we begin and we feed on the, the sincere or pure milk of the word of God. And as we grow, just like an infant gets off that milk and begins to take solid food, pretty soon it's taking more solid food, pretty soon it's not happening unless it has a steak. <laughs> or if you're a vegetarian, something else. Are you feeding on the solid food of the word of God? Or... Are you remaining dull of hearing? The value of good hearing takes place when we feed on the word of God. Great chapter. He's going to expand on Christ's priesthood as we get into 6 and 7, and especially Melchizedek. Let's close with a word of prayer and invite you guys back up for worship. Join, join me in praying. Heavenly Father, thank you again this morning for reminding us that you desire that we grow and that there are things often that get in the way in the life of every believer. Sometimes, Lord, our spiritual hearing aids get turned off. Sometimes we turn the volume down. Sometimes we choose to not even put them on. You know every one of us here this morning, Lord. You know our heart. You know our condition. You know our need. You know what is best for us and what will harm us. And you've promised in your word, Lord, that your thoughts toward us are good and not to harm us, uh, but to bring us to an expected end. And so, Lord, today, would you continue to have your way in each one of us Ask it in Jesus' name.